Hi, welcome to Creeps and Crime Storytime. My name is Charlie and I'm back with another episode for you. Um, this time I actually do have an announcement. I feel kind of weird making it but I felt like I wanted to give it a try. I've had a couple of people asking me about this. Um, so I don't really want to put advertisements on the podcast because I like keeping it ad free. I don't want my storytelling to be interrupted. I don't really want to have to like shill mattresses or subscriptions or other bullshit. It's not my vibe. I'd rather just come on here and talk about crime and then like go home. I don't know. Um, so I've set up a little coffee page thing because um, I I don't really know what I'd have to offer on like a subscription service like Patreon or something like that that I know a lot of podcasters use. Um, so I've set up a little coffee thing. Um, it's just coffee is in ko-fi slash creeps and crime story time. Um, the donations that you can make start at just like two quid or something. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you don't want ads, but you want to help me live, I would like that a lot. Oh, also, yeah, interesting for American listeners, because I know I have a lot of, of US people. Um, quid is what we call a pound. So that's like when you say but, I just thought I'd say in case you didn't know what I was talking about. That's what that is. Um, some English slang for you. Yeah, so I set up a little coffee page. Um, don't feel like I'm telling you you have to donate if you like the podcast, because you don't. You don't have to at all. But I've had a few messages about... Um, asking if I'm ever going to do a Patreon or anything like that and I, I, I don't know um, but yeah I don't really want to do ads but I I do everything myself um, clearly I do everything myself because um, yeah I've I think I've figured out the audio now I think I've figured out how to make the audio not fucking suck but yeah I do all the distribution myself I pay for all the distribution um, stuff which isn't like crazy expensive, but it's just another little monthly outgoing. So yeah, if anybody wants to pop me a couple of couple of quid, a couple of bucks, it would be real nice. Um, yeah, anyway, that's it. So that was my announcement. And this week we are going to be discussing Sherry Papini. If this is a case that you aren't familiar with, I advise against looking it up partway through listening because it's quite an unusual case and if you haven't heard it before I want you to experience it through through my telling of it rather than you going like oh who's Sherry Papini and then googling it and then having a look at it and sort of figuring out the story and what happens before I've got to finish so so let me finish um as always I'm gonna put up pictures to Instagram so if you want to have a look at pictures as we're going through please feel free to have a look at the photos um as we go along. Yeah. So Sherry was born in 1982, which is the same year my husband was born, which isn't, there's no point. I just thought it was interesting. She was born to Loretta and Rich Grafe in California, and she seemed to have quite an idyllic life. So she grew up with her loving parents, and by the time she was in middle school, she had met the love of her life, a young man called Keith Papini. The romance was a storybook one. Later on in 2009, when she, were, when, she, when she wrote on her wedding blog, she talked about their first meeting when they were just teenagers. Because she is the kind of woman who had a wedding... Sorry, my cats are fucking around in the background. And yeah, sorry. Um, so she was the kind of woman that had a wedding blog. She was, was that kind of person. She was all about femininity and about 
wanting to get married and wanting to have children. And she, she's that kind of person. Um, so she had a blog because in, in the early 2000s, in like 2009, everyone had, everyone has something like that. Like now it's Instagram and TikTok and, and whatever. But it, back then it was like blogs. It was like Tumblr. Um, 2009, I feel, is like post MySpace, but like still like Tumblr. So yeah, she so she talked about their first meeting, but this was when they were just teenagers. And she said, quote, he was in seventh grade, I was in eighth. I never imagined my middle school first kiss would turn out to be my husband, end quote. The stars hadn't aligned just yet, however, and Sherry ended up moving away to Shasta County. She met a young man called David Dreyfus, who was a sergeant in the US Army, and the two ended up marrying. However, this relationship will be short-lived as they divorced in 2008. In a strange twist of fate, Sherry moved back to her hometown and she ended up bumping into Keith, her very first kiss. The two started speaking again and they arranged to go on a date. Sherry wrote about this date on her wedding blog saying, quote, By our third date, we were head over heels in love and have spent every day together since. I've never been so happy. We always laugh and we always smile. We enjoy each other's company and make a great team. We're best friends and a perfect couple, end quote. So I said at the beginning that it sounds idyllic and that definitely sounds idyllic. It sounds very storybook. Although I can't imagine going on like a third date with someone and then literally spending every day with them forever. That's kind of quick, but you know, some people I guess like to move fast and that's fine. So the pair got married in 2009 after quite a short relationship. So they not only spent every day together after their third date, but they also got married super quickly. And a little while after that, they decided to grow their family. And they had two children. They had a boy and a girl, Tyler and Violet, and they stayed in California. And I haven't put this in my notes, but I just think Violet's a really cute name for a girl. I just think it's lovely. Maybe I should get a cat called Violet. I I feel like Violet would also be a good cat name. So Sherry was a stay-at-home mother and she ran her wedding blog. That was the thing that she did. And Keith worked at Best Buy. So the two were a happy family and people referred to Sherry as, quote, super mom, end quote. So she was known, like her friends and family, just she was like a, she was a mom and she was an incredible mom and she'd do everything for the kids. She was super organized. Everything that the kids wanted, she made sure they got it. She made sure they were always happy, always fed, always safe, always everything. She always put her two children first. She picked them up from daycare every day and she made literally everything about them. Her whole life was about Tyler and Violet. She doted on her kids. But the lives of the Papini family would change forever in November 2016. So, we're on the 2nd of November. Keith came home from work at Best Buy to an empty house. This was a little unusual as Sherry would normally be home with the children by the time he got home from work. He'd last spoken to her on his lunch break when she asked if he was going to go home on his lunch break to see her. He said that he wouldn't, probably because he only got an hour's break and he didn't want to spend half of it driving home, which, to be fair, Keith, I'd totally fucking get you. I spent many years in customer service positions and lunch breaks are a precious commodity and you can't just go around giving them up. Keith doesn't immediately panic when he finds that Sherry isn't there. He assumed that she was running an errand and took the kids with her because she just collected them from daycare. So he thought, oh, she's picked the kids up from daycare and she's just gone to do something real quick before she comes home. He's like, this is fine. To figure out where she might have gone, he calls the daycare and asks them what time Sherry came by to pick Tyler and Violet up. 
But to Keith's horror, the daycare employee tells him that the two children are still there. Sherry never came by. Panic beginning to rise now, Keith considers what he needs to do. Sherry is super mom. There's no way that she would neglect to pick up her two children from daycare. This has never happened before, not even once. Keith tries to figure out what Sherry's day would have looked like. He immediately thinks of her running schedule. So, Sherry had been training for a Thanksgiving Day race lately. She'd been running every day. Keith and Sherry lived a bit in the middle of nowhere. Their driveway was quite long, and there were woodland running trails all around. Sherry loved to go jogging every day and had been working hard training for this race. Could she have been out alone on a trail and something happened to her? Could she be injured somewhere? Could she have broken her ankle or something like that? So Keith did a really smart thing here at this point. Props to fucking Keith. He used the Find My iPhone app to get a location for Sherry's phone. Surely her phone would be with her. He saw that the phone was located at the end of their long driveway, which was connected up to the running trails that she used daily. He called his mum to pick up the children, and then he headed out to look for Sherry and her phone. And this is when he made a discovery. Sherry's phone was lying on the ground by the end of their driveway, but Sherry herself was nowhere to be seen. Keith noticed that the phone was face up, and the wired earphones were wrapped carefully around it. Keith noticed that several strands of Sherry's long blonde hair were tangled in the wire. It looked as though they'd been pulled out of her head, not cut. Sherry wasn't a very big person. She was five foot three and very slender. It would have been easy for someone to take her if they wanted to. Keith noticed that the phone was still playing music. Everything by Michael Bublé. It was the song they first danced to at their wedding. Sherry often listened to it as she worked out. She must have had it on repeat and it was still playing over and over and over again. Keith began to get really scared now, and he called 911. I will play a segment of that call for you now. 911, what is your emergency? Uh, CHP transferring. Keith is on the line. Hello, can I help you? Hello? Yeah, um, so uh, I just got home from work, and uh, my wife wasn't there, which is unusual, and my kids should have been there by now from like daycare. So I was like, oh, maybe she went on a walk. Um, I couldn't find her, so I called the, the daycare to see what time she picked up the kids. The kids were never picked up, so I got freaked out. So I hit like the Find My iPhone app thing, and it said that her it showed her phone like at our end of our driveway. We don't have really good service. Okay. Um, not the end of our driveway, but the end of our street. But so just drove down there, and I saw her phone with her headphones because she started running again. And it's I found her phone, and it's got like hair ripped out of it, like in the headphones. So I'm like totally freaking out, thinking like somebody okay, like what's your, grabbed her. Okay, what's your address? Ready. What, okay, what's your last name? Yes. Papini, P-A-P-I-N-I. And your first name? Uh, Keith. K-E-I-T-H? Uh, yes. Okay. Did you go pick up your children? No, I'm going to call my mom and have her do it. Okay. What's your wife's name? I'm going to like knock on every door. Uh, Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I. And same last name? Yes. She white female? Yes. What's her date of birth? Uh, it is uh, June 11th, 1982. 
And this call goes on for three and a half more minutes. You can just, you can tell by listening to that how panicked Keith is. He's rambling, he's tripping over his words, he's going really, really fast, he's barely even pausing to take a breath. He just wants to get all the information out to the 911 operator as quickly as possible. And you can tell he's trying really hard to keep his panic just under the surface. Um, So yeah, I feel kind of bad for Keith at this moment. He must be feeling like shit. Um... And you can hear that even though he's trying to make sense of the situation to the operator, he's trying to he's trying to be sensible. He's trying to get all the information across. He's flustered. Um, and thankfully, the police got involved right away. They showed up at the couple's home and started searching immediately. And word quickly spread around the community as well. And volunteers soon coordinated searches to look for the young mother. Almost 150 locals searched around the woodland areas where she jogged. And the police spoke to witnesses who had actually seen her that day. So apparently she was seen out jogging on the 2nd of November wearing a pink jacket. So we can tell that she did leave the house and she did go jogging. Then something happened and her phone was left on the ground. The main reason people immediately started looking for Sherry is because of her reputation as being, once again, a supermom. Everyone who knew her knew that she wouldn't break the routine that she made for her children. This was the biggest indicator that something was wrong. Tracking dogs were brought to the scene and they were able to trace her scent to her phone, Um, but no further than that. This was no indication, I mean, there was no indication by the dogs of the scent of human remains. This led people to believe that Sherry must have been abducted from or left the scene in a vehicle, explaining why the dogs couldn't pick up any more of a scent than that. Obviously, the first person you look at during suspicious circumstances is those close to the victim. And in the whole true crime scene, it's always the husband. That That's a trope for a reason. It usually fucking is. The thing is, the police said that Keith was super cooperative from the very beginning. He was more than happy to talk to the police whenever they needed to talk to him. Anytime they were like, Keith, we need to chat with you. He was like, yep, absolutely. And he just wanted to help. He was really quick to offer anything that he could think of to help them out. He allowed them to search his house without a warrant. He allowed them to take phones and computers. He took a polygraph and he had an ironclad alibi from his shift at work. Police were sure, absolutely sure, that childhood sweetheart Keith Papini had nothing to do with his wife's vanishing. On the 4th of November, two days after Sherry went missing, Secret Witness, a non-profit organisation in Chester County, donated $10,000 as a reward for information leading to Sherry's safe return. The following day, the family of Sherry added $40,000 to it, making the total $50,000. A few days after this, it became apparent that Keith was making a lot of TV and media appearances, and you can't blame him, the media is an incredible tool for getting information out there about missing and endangered people. It's There's so many platforms that you can take advantage of, and Keith was doing his best to utilise this to get his wife back. However, his desperate pleas were beginning to rub the police the wrong way. Not because they suspected him of any wrongdoing, they knew he was just desperate and scared, but he was making a lot of noise in the press, and this might spook Sherry's abductor into doing something to her if they hadn't already. Or it could just disrupt the investigation in some other way. They didn't want to cause anything bad to happen to Sherry beyond her already being taken. So there wasn't much that happened in between then and the 17th of November. Um, and on the 17th of November, a weird dude called Cameron Gamble rocked up onto the scene. 
I'm gonna get into this because it's really strange and definitely worth mentioning because uh, you'll see it's just really fucking weird. So on the 17th of November an anonymous donor pledged $50,000 for Sherry's safe return. This anonymous donor didn't want their identity revealed although later on they did an interview with Chris Hansen on Crime Watch where that identity was concealed. He claims to be a quote wealthy entrepreneur end quote who isn't local to the Shasta County area. He said, quote, it's never been about me. I've had all the recognition in life one man can ever want and I don't need any more, end quote. On this same day, the website sherrypapini.com was created, which had the information uploaded to it regarding the ransom. And there was also a deadline for 5am six days later, November 23rd. There was also a set of written instructions on the website in the form of a letter, and this Cameron Gamble guy was named in the letter as being the middleman in charge of negotiations. So this random anonymous donor has pledged 50k as like, oh yeah, if you bring her back unharmed, you can have this. So it's kind of like a backwards ransom. Um, This website, sherrypapini.com, pops up, and this random dude, Cameron Gamble, is named by the anonymous donor, as a middleman. And none of this is officially sanctioned. None of this has been cleared by the police. It's just kind of happened. Um, the letter on the website read, quote, my hired negotiator has negotiated hostage releases all over the world, so he will determine immediately if you are lying, end quote. But who the fuck is Cameron Campbell? Definitely not the anonymous wealthy entre- entrepreneur, Definitely not making himself out to be some kind of Batman. Obviously not, not even at all. Instead, he has described himself as, quote, an international kidnap and ransom consultant, quote. Whatever the fuck that means. I think that's a rather ostentatious self-given title, but whatevs. The same day the website was made, Cameron posted a video of himself to YouTube, shot with iffy lighting in a plain white background. His facial expression can be described as dodgy at best. He's got a bit of blue steel going on. It does seem a bit pantomime as he looks intently into the camera and says, quote, This offer is off the table in less than 100 hours. We don't care about justice. We simply care for Sherry's safe return. End quote. It does seem very dramatic, as though he's watched a few too many movies. Police negotiation tactics don't usually sound as though they've been written by a Michael Bay wannabe, but apparently this guy has years of experience and can do a much better job than the Shasta County Police Department. Three days later, by total coincidence, the domain name CameronGamble.com was registered. He definitely wasn't using this case and the huge media presence to boost his own spot in the limelight. It turns out that he really did like the media quite a bit, he was keen to do lots of interviews, obviously with the intention of getting Sherry, with the intention of getting Sherry's name out there, of course, and definitely not to raise awareness of his own brand new website. After all, he was a professional hostage negotiator. He actually had a Jesus Christ, I'd forgotten about this. He actually had a company called Project Taken, which sounds just as ridiculous and dramatic as everything else that he's been doing so far. The promotional material for this company was just as on-brand as you would think. I really advise you look it up because this is fucking hilarious. In one of those, like, just... uh, You need to to watch it. Just look this up. Um, 
The video featured a young blonde woman getting abducted by a stranger and Cameron Gamble's black and white visage fading in, telling her to heed his advice. At the end of the video, time rewinds and she reads a flyer for Project Taken. Um, they were on like safety seminars and shit and her fate is seemingly rewritten. Gamble sells himself as a hostage negotiator, kidnap expert and anti-abduction guy. I don't even know what that job is. I feel like, oh god, I've recently seen the Barbie movie and I feel like how Ken's job is just beach. I feel like this guy is just anti-abduction. Because that literally is like, I don't know exactly what it is that he does. He kind of, he kind of, I think he goes around giving like safety seminars, but then he sort of like, like with Sheriff Papini's abduction, he just kind of like got himself involved. He just kind of squeezed himself in there and he was like, hey, I'm an official hostage negotiator because I said so. And then, yeah, it's just really fucking weird. And I just thought it was too interesting to leave out because it's just, it's just weird. So basically he thinks he's Liam Neeson and it's really cringy, especially when you look into his actual history and what he's qualified for and it really doesn't track. If someone is actually a hostage negotiation expert, you'd think they would have years of experience in the police, the military, the FBI, some kind of specialised unit with training and actual hands-on experience of real-life crimes. But no. So Gamble served in the military for three years between 2002 and 2005. During this time in the armed forces, he failed several requirements and mostly spent his time refueling aircraft and driving military officials around bases. He was then discharged which definitely qualifies him to be Batman. An actual negotiation expert called Chris Voss, who was the lead international kidnapping negotiator with the FBI for 24 years, had some opinions about Cameron Gamble. It's important to recognise that Voss, according to an article by Record Searchlight, thinks that it is important to raise the awareness of abductions. So that goes without saying. Definitely bring media attention to people being abducted. Done. However, he doesn't necessarily believe that Gamble's idea of taking negotiations out of the hands of police and putting it with self-proclaimed experts outside of any kind of official body is really a good idea. And he said, quote, It's a dumb idea. These kinds of guys pop up in the developing world all the time. They're a nuisance, but they don't do much harm. There's no market for it in the US, and that's because society doesn't tolerate it. Law enforcement is well-equipped and effective enough to deal with kidnappings, and the alleged perpetrators usually get caught. When they do, they go to prison for a very long time, and there's no shortage of opportunists who try and stick their nose into a kidnapping. End quote. I find the last sentence from Voss, an actual expert, extremely telling. However, Gamble continued to stick his nose in. The police were still busy. Three days after the anonymous donor got involved and on the same day CameronGamble.com was created, the police revealed that they had received and were working through about 400 tips. There was a lot of work to be done and they were doing as much as possible. They'd already served 20 search warrants, but Cameron Gamble was still busy in front of the cameras, doing all the groundwork, obviously. Two days later, Gamble announces that he, in his infinite wisdom, believes that the captors were in, quote, decision-making mode, end quote, which is obviously something that he knows a lot about. The following day, the 23rd of November, the deadline for the 50k has passed. Our international negotiator reveals that this money has now been withdrawn 
and combined with the previous 50,000 fronted by the family and the community to be used as reward money instead. He, of course, took this as an opportunity to get his face out there and put this information out in the form of a video of himself. The case would take yet another unexpected turn on the following day, the 24th of November. It was Thanksgiving Day and a lady called Alison Sutton and her daughter were driving to Crescent City. It was about 4.30 in the morning and they saw something unusual on the side of the road. A woman, waving for help, clearly in distress. According to KRCR, Alison turned to her daughter and said, quote, Oh my gosh, I could really have hit her, end quote. She was very close to the side of the road. Alison continued, I saw a blonde woman frantically waving what looked to be a shirt up and down, trying to get somebody's attention, end quote. Alison pulled her car over and called 911 to report the woman in distress. She later learned that this woman was, in fact, Sherry Papini and felt incredibly guilty because she didn't do anything more than call the police. But, to be honest, as a woman driving alone or with a child, in the middle of the night at 4.30 in the morning, you can't be too careful. Calling the police to report this is a sensible thing to do. Anyway, Sherry was taken to the hospital by police and was finally reunited with her husband, Keith. He did some interviews with the media after the announcement of Sherry being found alive. Keith did some interviews with the media after the announcement of Sherry being found alive was made, and I will play an excerpt of this for you now. Keith Papini begins his Thanksgiving at 3.30 a.m. And, oh my God, honey, and of course he's screaming, it's very emotional, and uh, I love you, I love you, I love you, oh my God, you're, you're here, you're back, where are you? Where was she? And how did she get free from her captors? Sherry hasn't spoken publicly yet. The account of her release comes solely from what she told police and her husband. She was uh, bound. She had a chain around her waist. She had a bag over her head. I can't remember if it's her right or her left arm was chained to the chain. And her left hand was in the vehicle chained to something. Make sure she didn't jump out of the car. Yeah, they cut something to free her restraint. And he put his arm around me and he said, uh, you know, prepare yourself. Um, she's alive and you, you just got to be happy. They branded her. So I just wanted to see her. So I, I just ran past everybody and I, you know, throw open the curtain and she was there in a, in a bed and her poor face. I just hugged her. I just held her. I felt like I hugged her for like 20 minutes. I was so happy that she was there and, and I was just kissing her all over and then I got like nauseated just looking at her. It was so hard for me to see her like that. And... Whew, so poor Keith is having a rough fucking day. So as we know from Keith's description, Sherry was not looking too hot. I'll post pictures on the Instagram feed to um, see the injuries. Um, I'm not going to post anything too graphic. I'm not going to post anything, you know, that you'll need a, a huge warning about, but just so you can see kind of what Keith is talking about here. So she had bruises all over her arms and legs and her nose was swollen and also bruised up. She lost weight off her already slight frame and she now apparently weighed less than 90 pounds. Her hair had been cut. It was now about chain length where previously it had been long. 
and she had some rashes on her skin, so some red rashes, and most notably of all, a brand burned onto her back. It was a message, and a little difficult to make out, but it said Exodus, and there were also numbers underneath. Police revealed some of this information on a statement made to the public, but did not detail the message of the brand itself, but merely that a burned-on brand existed. Sherry did interviews herself, and she looked extremely sorry for herself indeed. So she detailed what she'd been through and she was curled up in a chair with a bandage across her nose. She was recovering at home and was doing well, although anxious and worried to answer the door to the many reporters that came not knocking to talk to her. The police obviously took statements as soon as they were able to. But what did Sherry have to say about her time in captivity? As the police suspected, her abduction took place while she was jogging. According to Sherry, a dark-coloured SUV pulled up with two women inside who appeared to be of Hispanic descent. Their faces were half-obscured by bandanas tied like masks beneath their eyes, but Sherry said one of them was clearly younger than the other. The women brandished a handgun and told Sherry to get in, and she complied to avoid being hurt. Sherry was taken to an unknown location and led to a room with a walk-in closet inside. She was chained up to a bar inside the closet and the chain was long enough so that if she behaved well, she could move around the room itself. If she misbehaved, she'd be locked in the closet. Sherry said that there was enough slack on the chain to do simple exercises, but not enough to reach the door. The windows had wooden planks across them, and early in her captivity, Sherry attempted to remove some of these planks. She was discovered making her escape attempt, and she was dragged into another room with a table. She was tied to this table, face down, and her back exposed, where she received the branding. Sherry told the police that while she was being branded, she could hear the skin making a popping, sizzling sound. Sherry was fed once a day and her meal would usually consist of either rice or tortillas, and sometimes apples. As well as the wooden boards on the windows obscuring her vision, Sherry was unable to figure out where she was by listening either, as she told the police. The report says, quote, They would play music loudly, that really annoying Mexican music, and they would watch TV. There was a fireplace, I could smell it. I could hear that sound, you know when you move the handle to open the fireplace, it made like a creaky sound and it was cold. It was always cold, and it seemed like it rained almost every night. I heard birds. I never heard anything else. They put the stereo right outside my door and played it super loud, end quote. If you're thinking that this sounds like some sensory deprivation Guantanamo Bay style torture, you're not alone. The local community was incensed, and this had a knock-on effect on the local Hispanic community as well. Everybody was on the lookout for these two women who'd abducted Sherry and treated her so horribly. Of her escape, Sherry told the police that late one night, the young woman of the two, the younger woman of the two, got into an argument with the older one, and she eventually came to Sherry's room and unchained her, taking her to her car. The young woman drove Sherry out to near where she was found, turfed her out of the car, and that was it. On the thirtieth of November, the police held a news conference. A description of the two women was released and that it was still unknown whether or not this abduction was linked to human trafficking in any way. <sighs> Cameron Gamble also decided to speak again. Just this fucking guy, he did an interview with KRCR News saying that, quote, 
history was made, end quote. He also said that how this case was handled should serve as a model for other abductions. He really fucking loves himself, doesn't he? Obviously, the fact that Sherry came home was all to do with him and his weird little advert and his weird little company. In December 2016, over a month after Sherry came home, People.com reported that an old blog post had resurfaced, which was made by someone who could potentially be Sherry. Who, basically when you hear it, was almost definitely Sherry. The author was someone named Sherry Grafe, and if you remember, Grafe is Sherry's maiden name. It's not a massively common name either. The post was made in 2003 and described how this completely different Sherry Grafe had experienced abuse at the hands of Hispanic people in her life in Shasta County, which is where our Sherry also happens to live. This post was made on a white supremacist website, the now offline skinheads.com, and unearthed by members of web sleuths using an archive tool. The post details how Sherry and her family would be the targets of racist abuse because they were proud of being white, and how Latino people in the community would abuse them for being, quote, Nazis, end quote. I shall read a few quotes from this post now. Here we go. The problem was, I was drug-free, white, and proud of my blood and heritage. I don't think I've ever been that mad. I lunged back at her, slamming her head between the bleachers and pounding her face. It took three full-size men to pull me off of her. Girls should not fight. We're too fragile and break easily. I totally agree with skinheads that girls should not fight. They should stand by their men. But sometimes I guess you have to do what's necessary when a skinhead isn't on hand. Being white is more than just being aware of my skin, but of standing behind skinheads, who are always around, in spirit as well, and having pride for my country. Oh my god, I feel like I need a shower after reading that. It just makes me uncomfortable and... I hate it, and it's gross. Okay, so as if the little anecdote about having three full-sized men having to use all their strength to get petite little Sherry off a Latino girl during a fight isn't overly dramatic and hard to swallow enough, there is another story that seems even more like some scene from a self-indulgent Mary Sue-esque fanfiction. So she describes how she was jumped by eight Latino people. Yeah, fucking eight. Eight people. And they fractured her leg, but she got up off the floor and fought them all off. With a fractured leg. Eight people. And it's just as dramatic and badly written and cliche as you think it is. I read the whole fucking thing. This was like two A4 pages of self-aggrandizing fanfiction bullshit. And when People Magazine contacted Sherry's dad, who featured heavily in the blog post, he said, quote, Sherry did not write that letter. Some punks wrote that letter, end quote. I just feel like now I have to refer to people I don't like as some punks. So those people following the case began to see the clearly racist content in this post. And they began to link it to the very stereotypically described captors that Sherry had said had abducted her. So the Mexican music, the tortillas, the bandanas, it's kind of a lot. There's a lot of stereotypes in Sherry's description and there's a lot of racist stuff that definitely not her had written in 2003. So there wasn't much movement on the case until April 2017. So this is five months after Sherry was returned to her family. 
The Sacramento Bee posted an article which raised some eyebrows in the local community and it was met with backlash from Sherry's family. So this article discusses that in 2003, incidentally the same year as the dodgy blog post, Sherry's mother, Loretta, made some complaints to the police department regarding her daughter. So according to these calls, Sherry had been harming herself and blaming her injuries on her mother. I haven't been able to find out what kind of injuries these were or what kind of resolution happened here because the call logs only state that she'd harmed herself. They didn't say how she harmed herself. There wasn't then like a follow-up report with information about what happened afterwards. That was literally it. But like I said, Sherry's family weren't best pleased that this had come out at all and they thought it was pretty disgusting that the Sacramento Bee would bring up this unrelated incident at a time when Sherry had been through a lot of trauma. But it did make the public wonder, if Sherry had lied about being abused once before, could she have done it again? Shortly after this news story, in June 2017, the FBI released the... <laughs> Why did I say that really? The FBI? The FBI released some information regarding the suspects. So some sketches had been drawn up and released to the public, and they closely matched the description that Sherry had given the previous year. The younger woman had curly hair and thin eyebrows, and the older, oh god, the older woman looked just like Danny Trejo. So this didn't go unnoticed by, well, anyone. Message boards were full of comments about how it was unlikely that Sherry Papini got abducted by a Danny Trejo lookalike, and that if she was making up the whole thing, she just described a well-known Hispanic person because they were easily to ment- they, they were easy to mentally conjure up. And of course, people remembered the blog post, faking injuries from her mom. The perception of Sherry was beginning to change and it wasn't looking great and it got fucking worse. So a few months after this, in October 2017, the police revealed that Sherry's phone records had shown that she was texting a guy from Detroit, Michigan and was planning to meet him in real life shortly before she went missing. This meeting actually never happened and the police said it was unrelated. I actually kind of find it entertaining that this wasn't related to the case, but the police were just like, yeah, we just found some shady texts that aren't related, but it just kind of proves that she can't be trusted. That's all. During this announcement, police also made a statement regarding DNA. So some DNA not belonging to Sherry had been found on her. There were actually two donors to the DNA collected, some from a woman found on Sherry's body, and some from a man found on two items of Sherry's clothing, her underwear, and sweatpants, and both of these things are what Sherry was wearing when she was found by the side of the road. Police didn't yet know who this DNA belonged to, but it was confirmed that it was definitely not from either Sherry or her husband, Keith. In the weeks following this announcement, the police revealed another card in their hand. They show CCTV footage of Sherry the morning that she was discovered by Alison Sutton. Sherry can be seen running towards a church away from the main interstate, which is where Sherry said she was booted out of the car by the younger woman. She ran to the church, hoping that somebody would be there to help her, but as it was four in the morning, the church was locked up and empty. She can then be seen again in the video, running back towards the road again, which is where she would eventually be found. The footage was released in the hopes of generating more tips, and the police had their fingers crossed that the image of Sherry running across the parking lot in the church might jog someone's memory. And here we have a huge gap. So there wasn't much going on until a couple of years later. So it took until September 2019 
until the male DNA found on the sweatpants and the underwear of Sherry was submitted to a familial database. So familial, um, familial, blah, blah, blah. oh my God, my fucking words. So this is the kind of genetic genealogy thing that we have Paul Holes to thank for. Thank you, Paul. So the DNA got submitted not to try and find a direct match because they'd already had a look. They couldn't find any direct matches, but to see if they could find a relative of the person who left the DNA. And they did. So it took until March 2020 for it to come back, but it came back. And the DNA matched to somebody as being related to the guy who left it. So they started looking at this guy. So the guy that matched, they started looking at this dude's relatives to see if any of these relatives looked suspicious or related to the crime or related to Sherry in any way at all. And wouldn't you fucking know it? One of this guy's relatives was actually an ex-boyfriend of Sherry Papini. And the police were like, shit, this, this is it. This looks like it. So... The police found where the ex-boyfriend lived and did a trash pull. So they did a DNA test on a discarded green tea bottle. And it was a conclusive match, so they got in touch with this man, James Reyes. In August 2020, they were like, hey, do you want to come for an interview with us? And he was like, yeah, sure. And he didn't hold anything back. So James had known Sherry a long-ass time, so they'd been friends since they were teenagers, which is almost as long as she'd known her husband. Sherry and James actually dated at one point in 2006, and then they just went their separate ways, as sometimes happens. However, she got back in touch with him unexpectedly shortly before she disappeared, and she told James that Keith was abusing her. She told him that she was being beaten and raped at home, and that she was desperate to escape. James was obviously fucking horrified, and the two arranged for him to come and get her, and he drove like like hours it was not a short distance from southern california up to reading to pick her up it took him like like five hours or something to drive all the way up there and then he had to drive all the way home again it's important to note that james reyes as well has never been in any kind of legal trouble before and all his family say that he's the kind of person who would just help anyone he's just one of those nice golden retriever guys kind of like kind of like keith as well so these men are both like golden retriever boyfriends at this point so yes he went to go pick up sherry and this was the day that she left her phone and earphones very dramatically playing her wedding song for her poor unsuspecting husband to find she lived in james's apartment with him refusing to go outside eating very little to make sure she lost weight and she created injuries on herself she would hit herself to create bruises. The bruise across her nose happened. Um, I think she actually fractured her nose. Um, there was a lot of times when she asked James to like hit her and he was always like, no, I'm not going to fucking hit you. But he would kind of like help. So there was one time when he held up, he played hockey. So he, she was like, hold up your hockey stick. So he held up his hockey stick and she like pressed her face on it and just pushed and pushed and pushed on her nose on this hockey stick until it until it fractured um which is gross um sherry asked james to quote bank a puck off my leg end quote and he did what she asked he also bought pyrography equipment from hobby lobby to create the branding on her back when investigators were like dude why the fuck did you go along with this crazy scheme 
Was it not obvious to you that this was a crazy scheme? He told them that he really believed that her husband was abusing her and this was like an escape. And when he saw on the news like, oh, this woman is missing, he just thought like, oh, I'd better keep her here so her husband doesn't find out where she's gone. And he he really believed it. And I think he was, I think he was also kind of hoping that while she was there and he was being her big, strong savior, that she might want to rekindle their romantic relationship from bygone days. Oh, James. Oh, James, no. In the end, she told poor naive James that she was missing her children and she wanted to go home. So he drove her all the way home. He drove her all the way back up there. It, t- it took him hours to go get her. And he drove her hours all the way back. And then he had to drive home by himself. And it's just that fucking sucks. But anyway, he dropped her off, which is then when she was seen on the CCTV outside the church. And then she was found. His mobile phone records show that what he said lined up with, with where his phone was at the time. And it was unlikely that he was fabricating the bits in between. Also, some of his family members saw her. And he was like, yeah, this lady, I'm housing her because her husband's like beating the shit out of her and it's terrible. So you can't tell anyone that she's here. And and his family members were like, okay. Anyway, obviously, after hearing all this from James, the police were like, we need to talk to Sherry. Okay, so there is a video that's almost an hour and a half long of two Shasta County detectives talking to Sherry and Keith. And this interview is incredible. If you want to see this video, I will link it in the show description and I encourage all of you to watch it because it's exquisite. It's amazing. Watching Sherry's body language is so, so, so incredible. There's a lot that goes on. I really, if if you like this story so far, I really recommend you watch this interview because it's just, it's one of the best pieces of interview footage that I have ever seen. I just love it so much. So some of my favourite moments are Sherry being faced with a six-pack of photos to choose the Hispanic women from. Because the police were like, yeah, okay, let's just bring her in here and act like everything's fine and we just need to talk to her again. Because she'd always been really forthcoming because obviously she loves to build on the lie. So they were like, yep, we'll just do this again. So they printed out these photos um, for each of the women, one for the young woman and one for the old woman. Like six photos of like lineup photos from random people. And they placed these two six packs in front of her. And she spent ages studying these in front of the detectives, like, like nose to the fucking table studying. And they knew that these women weren't guilty because she wasn't abducted. She knows that she wasn't abducted, but she has no idea the police know. So she's just being really theatrical about the whole thing. And she actually asked the officers for a piece of paper so she can very dramatically and seriously cover the other faces while she studies one at a time, making out like she's so dedicated to providing an answer. And all the while, they're just watching her play pretend, knowing exactly what she's doing. There's also a point when Sherry actually shushes one of the officers. She's concentrating so hard on these photos and he speaks and she shushes him. The audacity, the audacity. Also, as she begins to realise that they know exactly what happens, she conveniently and very suddenly starts to forget who abducted her and forget anything that happened. She also makes it very clear that she doesn't want the younger woman to get into trouble because she saved my life. 
She tells the officers, quote, I don't want her to get arrested, end quote. And they're like, don't worry, she won't be arrested. Because she doesn't exist. Fucking mic drop. Just, it's it's incredible. The way that they are just so chill, they're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, she's not going to be arrested. And it's, oh, mate, you need to watch it. It's insane. So when she knows the jig is up, she just starts sniffling and crying and making lots of whiny noises. Like, you know, when someone's crying and all their words become like one long word, kind of like, it's kind of, she starts doing that for like a really long time. And you can tell that because that's, that's what she goes to, that that's what usually works. So when she does that at home to manipulate her poor fucking husband, he obviously clearly just caves in and does whatever. And, but the police aren't going to buy that. The thing is, Keith is sat on this sat in on this interview as well, and when he starts to realize, like he starts out being really supportive and really enthusiastic, and when the police are like, "We have the DNA of the guy. We know where he lives," he's like, "Fucking yeah, we've got the guy. We're gonna solve this." And you can see Sherry start to shit her fucking pants because she's like, "Oh no, yeah." And then eventually, Keith realizes, like, "Oh, you know who the guy is." Oh, you you asked him to come pick you up. Oh, you orchestrated the whole thing. And then he leaves. I cannot even imagine the devastation. And then after the interview is done, he comes back into the police and he starts saying to the police, like, I don't want her to come home with me. Can you guys, like, keep her? Like, I don't want her around my kids. And I think, I think after this happened, they lived separately. I know that at some point she went to live with a relative, I think in Chico. Did I remember? I think she lived in Chico. Anyway, I think they lived separately after this. Um, But after the August 2020 interview, it would be a little while until anything else would happen. I don't know what was going on between August 2020 and March 22. Obviously, I'm guessing the coronavirus pandemic ground lots of police work to a halt. But it was fucking worth the wait. So this... It's not anything that's on video and I desperately wish it was because I have a very dramatic reenactment in my brain of what I think happened and I just wish I could watch it unfold in in real life. So Sherry had taken her two children to a piano lesson because she's super mom and she was called outside because a man arrived who said, oh my god, you know, are you the lady with that car? Because that car's been hit and it's damaged. And she left her two children with the piano tutor and came outside to check the damage to a car like you would do. But another guy was waiting outside for her. This guy identified himself as an FBI agent and said that she was under arrest. And so was the guy that went inside. They were both in the FBI. Sherry, in her usual dramatic fashion, freaked out and screamed, No! And tried her darndest to run away. For some reason, she even threw her phone as she ran, and it went only about 20 feet. I'm not sure what she was hoping to achieve here. So was she hoping that the agents would run after her phone instead of her, like when you pretend to throw a tennis ball for a dog, or that she needed to ditch the phone because it had evidence on it, and she literally just threw it right down in front of them. Either way, if you actually picture this exchange, it's fucking hilarious. So the agents caught up to her rather quickly. And she was put in handcuffs and told that she was being arrested for lying to federal agents and mail fraud. The mail fraud is for collecting and keeping the money from the GoFundMe raised for trying to get her home safely. 
She had a couple of hearings following this to determine what they should do with her. Should she be released to wait at home until her trial? Should she be in county jail? Her defence attorney said that she definitely wasn't a flight risk and she only ran from the agents because she was startled and wanted to protect her children. But like, well, she didn't run towards her children, she just ran. She was prepared to bail on those fucking kids at their piano and save herself. They also said that they shouldn't put on an ankle monitor because it would hurt her mental well-being because of the PTSD. Oh, poor Sherry, the, the PTSD of pretending to be kidnapped. The prosecution, on the other hand, said that she was a massive fucking flight risk because she not only tried to evade capture from the FBI agents by running, but she'd already proven that she could avoid detection for weeks at a time when, like, the whole country was fucking looking for her. The prosecutor, Veronica Al. Algeria also suggested that an ankle monitor wouldn't even be enough. Algeria pointed out that to make her own lie believable, she'd been willing to bruise, burn, and do whatever else to herself. And to be honest, I think if she got an ankle monitor, she'd probably cut her fucking leg off. Because Sherry hasn't got a criminal history, however, the judge let her off real easy and said she could be let out on bail for a bond of $120,000. She was, however, forced to hand in her passport and any firearms in the household. Sherry was faced with charges from the prosecutor of, like we said, lined federal agents and mail fraud, but it ended up actually being 34 counts of mail fraud for all different payments. Her husband Keith and the ex-boyfriend James faced no charges. They'd been completely tricked by Sherry and believed all of her bullshit. After her charges in March, Inside Edition managed to find a guy who used to date Sherry. He gives us a bit more insight into what she's like, and it's very interesting. Shohin Davari says that he knew Sherry when he was 15 years old and she was 20. And she was a youth counsellor. And she dated him. There's something really icky about a 20-year-old youth counsellor dating a 15-year-old boy. He believes that Sherry is a compulsive liar. Shohin was a keen surfer and Sherry knew that surfing was one of his hobbies. And she insisted that she loved to surf as well. But whenever he invited her to go together, there was always an excuse. She needed her particular surfboard that's back at my house. And there were no photos of her surfing either. So, you know, which is weird because apparently it was her favorite thing. She did it all the time. It gets worse. Apparently, she also faked having a heart condition. I'm not sure what this would achieve apart from getting her lots of attention, which seems to be the main goal for most of the stuff that she does. Shohin said that when he saw on the news that Sherry had been kidnapped, he was immediately skeptical. He told Inside Edition, quote, I was like, no way. She's fine. I promise you she's fine. There's just no chance that she got kidnapped, end quote. Shohin also said that once it came out that Sherry had been hiding out with an ex-boyfriend, people thought it was him and they kept hounding him, so he wanted people to know that he had nothing to do with it and fully thought that Sherry was a little liar. I also saw a thing that as I've been reading this, I've just remembered, but I forgot to write it down. You know, I said that she married that guy, David Dreyfus, um, the guy in the military. I feel like she also told him that she had a heart condition, that she told him she had something and that she married him to get his medical insurance or something like that. And that came out afterwards that she'd also done that. But I I can't remember. And I've got my phone on airplane mode, so then it doesn't make that weird sound. Anyway, so I can't look it up right now. But I feel like that's a thing that also happened. 
A couple of weeks after her charges were announced, Sherry actually entered a plea. I think she realised that she was massively fucked. She entered a guilty plea for two of the charges and admitted that she'd orchestrated the whole complex hoax. The day she pled guilty, Keith filed for divorce and sole custody of their two children. Sherry was sentenced later that year to 18 months in jail, that's it, and fined $300,000. And she's in jail right now. So Keith is hopefully having a lovely Sherry-free life and he is able to recover from the fucking insane amount of trauma that he went through thinking his wife was kidnapped or dead or something horrible. And also the trauma of finding out that your wife is a huge insane narcissist that doesn't give a shit about you and will manipulate and say awful things about you just to get herself some attention. And hopefully their kids don't have too much to unpack in therapy down the line for having such a manipulative narcissist as a mother. Anyway, that's the story. So, and what a fucking twist. So I know that lately I've been covering a lot of stories about women who've gone missing and not come back. So I thought I'd throw in a bit of a curveball and do Sherry Papini because none of you would have fucking seen that coming. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed my telling of this story. And yeah, I hope that you found it interesting and enlightening and usually I say like I hope that we've learned something I hope that we've learned something about you know especially to my female listeners and my female presenting listeners I always hope that you've learned something about like safety or something like that but this time I really think it's for everyone it's just don't you can't always trust people you can't always believe people if they tell you something um which is a fucking shame really but I guess you could even be married to an insane narcissist like Sherry Papini and not have a clue. Um, if you are a golden retriever husband, just be careful. Um, because, yeah, not every wife is a golden retriever wife. But yeah, that's my story. That's it. And um, yeah, I guess it's not far from 18 months, so Sherry Papini might be getting out in like spring next year. Um But yeah, it'd be very interesting to keep an eye on. And I hope you've had a lovely time with me. I hope that you've had a nice day and I'll see you next time. If you have any case recommendations, message me on the Instagram because that's my favorite platform. I don't check my emails as often as I should. I definitely am on Instagram more. Please message me about crime if you would like to. Please message me about case recommendations if you would like to. And if you decide that I actually do a good job and you would like to buy me a coffee so I can keep existing, please go to my coffee page, which is linked somewhere. I know I've put the link on my Instagram. I don't know if I can, can I put the, yeah, I'm going to try and put the link on Spotify. I'm going to try and do that. We'll see if I can figure that out. But yeah, so it's ko-fi slash creeps and crime story time. And I would like it very much. But anyway, have a gorgeous day and I'll see you soon. Bye.